Good evening, everybody. Um, it's such a privilege to welcome everybody to the Rabbi Samuel Chil Sanctuary at Temple Emmanuel. And uh, it's such a privilege to uh, welcome Rabbi Justin Pines to be our teacher tonight. Um, I want to frame uh, Rabbi Pines' very unique angle. It's an angle that, honestly, I've thought about my whole life, and I've never actually seen it discussed. I've thought about it my whole life, and I've never seen it discussed. And the angle simply is this. How does your own personal experience of Israel shape how you see Israel? So I'll give you just one example. Just my personal formative story is that in 1995, when bus number 18 was destroyed, by the way, when I was in Israel two weeks ago, you still see bus number 18, like the bus 18. It's still, it's, it goes right past my father-in-law's apartment. Bus number 18, Erev Purim of 1995, um, among the two people who were murdered by the terrorists who exploded the bomb were Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker. Matthew Eisenfeld uh, was a rabbinical student at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Sarah Duker uh, grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, was a member of Beth Shalom. My wife and kids and I were members of Beth Shalom, and we lived in Teaneck, New Jersey. And all the years that I was at the seminary in Teaneck, I would connect with Arlene Duker, Sarah's mother, after her daughter was murdered in bus number 18. The whole seminary went to Matthew Eisenfeld's funeral. The entire seminary went to Sarah Duker's funeral. And my experience of Israel is the destruction of bus number 18 and the loss of these two incredible people. By the way, the Beit Midrash at the seminary is called the Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker Beit Midrash. I can't see Israel without thinking about Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker. I can't see Israel without thinking about the death of bus number 18. So it's not only ideas, disembodied ideas and theories and postulates, it's Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker. And I've often wondered, and of course, everybody has their own version of that personal story of one kind or another. Everybody has their own version of that story one way or another. And I've often wondered, how do you think about how that personal experience shapes your ideology? And I've never seen a talk or a lecture or sources gathered about that intentionally until tonight. Now, Justin Pines, um, I'm going to just ask him to talk about two really cool things in his introduction. One is, um, you know, he was a lawyer before becoming a rabbi. And as I shared on Shabbat, you really can't trust people like that. Um, and as so I w wanted to hear about that story. And then the second thing that's just like a really cool, like very meta about biography and ideology is that Justin is the grandson of four Holocaust survivors. And I'd love you, Justin, to talk about that and how that fact has shaped your life trajectory. So deep gratitude to Rabbi Justin Pines for talking about <laughs> such very important matters. Uh, Justin, welcome to Temple Emanuel. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for you. Us. Thank you. And thanks for the two uh, requests there. Great. So, 
Hi, everyone. First, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you so much. It's great to be here, Rabbi West, the entire clergy, professional, and lay leadership here. Um, Amy, for everything you did to bring this together. Um, all of you for choosing to spend a little bit of time this evening uh, here in the cold. Um, my colleague Emily and Gila, who are in the back, um, who uh, represent us here in Boston and have the work they've done to bring this together. Um, I'll say a few words about myself to introduce myself, and I'll respond to your prompts as well, I guess, along the way. I hadn't planned for that, but I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak about them. Um, so I'll say the following, uh, kind of the, let's start with the Holocaust piece. It all starts there, I guess. Um, I, I am the grandchild of four Holocaust survivors. Um, my grandfather, Murray Pantier, um, was, lived a very unique and special life um, with sad parts and good parts. He was the only survivor of his family of seven siblings and two parents. Um, he was saved by Oscar Schindler. And uh, he came here, and the only surviving family he had was one uncle. Uh, and when he got here, him along with his uncle and one other Schindler survivor um, started a real estate development uh, company after a few years working in factories, those kinds of things, um, and went on to have a very successful uh, business life and experience, and also to rebuild his family, to have three children um, who then had nine children, who now, you know, we stop counting now, but thank God it's a grown family. Um, and uh, kind of my, what I took from him a little bit was this sense that, first of all, take nothing for granted, right? This, everything can be taken away, and also what does it mean to build a life here? Um, and so that's one story that comes with me. And I think the other is this kind of sense of obligation. Um, when he had no money here, he recognized the importance of trying to get help from others, not financial help, like you know, learning a trade. And also when he became very successful, he recognized that with uh, getting money and influence and opportunities, what the, the responsibility to uh, serve, whether it was within the Jewish community or more broadly, informal lay leadership roles like the Federation, but also Holocaust awareness, um, Yad Vashem, U.S. Holocaust Commission, all those things. Um, and uh, one little uh, note I'll add to that is also Hakarat um, Hatov, um, sharing gratitude. Um, a core value that him and his partners did was they named streets after Oscar Schindler all over New Jersey. Um, and so we're in the third generation of the family business now, but there is close to 30 streets throughout New Jersey that are Schindler Drive and Schindler uh, Street and Schindler Circle. Um, yeah, which before the movie came out, um, they got a lot of pushback and people were like, we want maple and oak. Why do you have to do Schindler? Um, and uh, once the movie came out, it was like, yes, we love that you did Schindler in our, in our town. Thank you so much. We will give, you know, um, so that was great. And I think that was also for him that moment when kind of Schindler's List first became the book, Schindler's Ark, and then when it became the film, um, was a very exciting moment for him to kind of see his story told and the importance of, of seeing the story told. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of segue that into your second question, um, which was uh, along the lines of how did I, how did I get here? Um, I was a lawyer, what happened there? And so there's kind of two different ways that I talk about that story. You want the Midrash or the biography? Which one? <laughs> Hands for Midrash? Hands for biography. Oh, it's like a oh, biography. Oh, yes, fine. So, so um, the I think I was kind of raised first, my, really my grandfather, and then also my father, who's his son-in-law. Both kind of lived this life of the gifts you have, you apply. That's it. Whatever you have, you have money, you have smarts, you have athletic, whatever you have. Your job is to bring those things into the world to serve the Jewish community and beyond. 
Um, and so I think um, I spent a lot of time like clarifying what my gifts were. And I think that growing up, I imagined that I would be a lay leader um, like my father and like my grandfather. I, um, I, I was here, I was at Harvard Law School. I, went, I worked at Paul Weiss, a big law firm. And I, um, you know, I started my law firm career and I, was, I chaired the Jewish Law Student Association in law school. I was the president of Hillel and College. I was um, the APEC Young Leadership Chair in New York City. Um, so I was like, I was doing the, the lay leadership thing. Um, and I think really initially, um, I just felt like I wanted to know more Torah. Separate from becoming a rabbi, I just felt like I had this like imposter syndrome a little bit. Like how can I be a Jewish leader and not know more Judaism? Um, and actually, um, even before I went to law school, I, I struck a deal with my parents. They offered to pay for me to go to Israel at Pardes for a year if I, uh, if I got into Harvard, Yale, or NYU Law School. Um, and so you can imagine me studying super, super hard for the LSATs uh, to get into Israel. Um, uh, and thank God I did well. Um, and so I, I, I got in, I didn't get into Yale, by the way, um, but I, I got into Harvard, thank God, and they sent me to Israel for a year and paid for it, which was amazing. Um, I had the very naive idea that if I spent one year in Israel, I would like know Judaism and be done and move on with my life. Um, and of course, it turns out, thank God, it's, it's, a, it's an eternal journey not even for one of us, but for our, our people over time. Um, so I'm grateful to be part of that. Um, and so um, as I was a lawyer for three years, I, I felt that um, I wanted to learn more Torah, and I took a leave of absence. Paul Weiss, thank you, Paul Weiss, gave me a leave of absence to go study Torah in Israel, which is totally unheard of, but they were great. Um, actually, Eric Goldstein, I know this is Boston, but those who know New York, um, was a partner of Paul Weiss at the time and kind of helped me navigate that, and I'm very grateful to him for that. And so um, I originally just really wanted to learn Torah, and then eventually um, it was really hard to find a place to learn Torah in New York when I came back, and so I went to Chobavet Torah, to rabbinical school, and became uh, a, uh, a rabbi. I will say that like it's very cool. I've been hearing about the Lair House opening here, and I think like having places where people can learn Torah not for a piece of paper um, is, is very exciting, because I kind of felt like if I'm going to leave Paul Weiss, I need to have a piece of paper at the end of this. And so that's why I ended up becoming a rabbi. Uh, along the way of that is where I discovered Musser, actually. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes, but that's where I discovered Musser, and that's what we'll talk a little bit about today. Um, and so that kind of has shift. And now I'll tell the quick version of the Midrash version, which is that my Hebrew name is Yosef Shmuel. Um, Yosef was um, uh, my, uh, my, my grandfather, who I mentioned before, his brother, and Shmuel was my, one of my other grandmother's brothers who both died in the Holocaust. Um, and Yosef, in my mind, is the paradigm of the lay leader. Right? He goes to Egypt, he goes way high up in the government um, and does all this stuff and managed to help the Jewish people. So I think I was on the Yosef path. And then at some point, I switched to the Shmuel path, Shmuel the Navi, the prophet, um, who, who dedicated his life to not being a lay leader, but being a leader within the Jewish people. So that's my answer to your two questions, um, <laughs> which I hope didn't go too long. Um, I'll, I'll add to that the following, which is um, in addition to um, my father and my grandfather's key influences, and now I'm coming into what we're talking about today, um, I want to just mention a couple other influences that I think shape who I am. Um, and I think that's kind of the question here today is around like noticing what shapes who we are. Um, some of those things are natural, some of those things are experiences that we live through, and, um, and how they shape the way we think about this, and how they might create opportunities for us to show up in conversations, and around shaping community around Israel and beyond, I would say. So in addition to my father and my grandfather, I would say that Rabbi Yitz Greenberg is another person that really has shaped the way that I think, um, who I really deeply encountered in rabbinical school, 
and who I had the amazing privilege to, when I, when I finished rabbinical school, I split my time between um, what was called Mashkiach Ruchani, Director of Character Development at Ramaz in New York, you may have heard of, and then I worked one-on-one with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, um, which was amazing, I recommend it. Um, <laughs> I spent three years studying with him, um, uh, working on a couple books with him and some, pro- and some projects. I will say that like, more than like the ideas, which were amazing, and the things that I learned from him, also just being around him and seeing the way he conducts his life, right? The way that he handles a fender bender, the way he handles when his wife buys him the wrong shirts, which I have so much to learn there, right? It was like, um, just like these small things about how to be in the world. Um, and so I think, and, and then his big theology, which I'll talk a little about today, I think also influenced me. And then of course, in Musser, for sure, I mentioned before, this idea of clarifying, I'll talk about Musser more deeply, but I'll just say Musser as a headline now. Um, for that, I just want to say, one of my influences is Rabbi Beryl Gershenfeld, the head of Meor on campus, um, if you've heard of Meor. Um, but I also want to mention, especially in Boston, Rabbi David Jaffe. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get some nods, hopefully. David Jaffe, yeah? We got it? Okay, great. Rabbi David Jaffe. What about Jen Weinstock? Yes? Yeah, of course. So Jen and I were in the Wexner Fellowship together, and Jen knew that I was into Musser, and Jen suggested that I meet with uh, Rabbi David Jaffe to learn Musser. Um, And that was like, I don't know, 2000. 12 maybe or something like that, 2013, and we've been learning uh, once a month ever since, um, and that's totally shaped a lot of the way that I think. So I want to say gratitude to those people, and I also want to note that they're going to shape the things that I'm going to say. Um, okay, uh, before we get into the role of the personal narrative, I want to zoom out a little bit, uh, offer a Musser framework for you, um, and then uh, and then we'll kind of, uh, there'll be three pieces to this, and the second piece will be specifically the narrative piece. So. One big headline, I would argue, of Musser is clarifying the ideal, naming the real, and closing the gap between them. Right? Perhaps we do this in all parts of life, but Musser is saying, I don't know, pick your thing. Um, I, want, I want to be more patient with my children. Okay? I have a seven, five, three, and six-month-old at home. Um, I am not particularly patient with my children. I think I am, actually, but let's just use another example. Uh, right? I want to be patient with my children. I'm not patient with my children. So I have this idea of what it should be, and I have the reality of what it is, and what are the frameworks or the steps that can help get me from one place to the other. Um, that, I would say, in some ways, is like the big picture of Musser. Um, and uh, the challenge of closing the gap is how we get from one place to the other. And so along those lines, I want to zoom out a little bit first, talk about the ideal, talk about the real, talk about the stories and the character traits that shape the real for us, and then come back to how do we close the gap between, how do I get from the real to the ideal? And the last thing I'll just say about moving from the real to the ideal is the secret is you never get there. Um, it's really important to know that, I think, um, uh, because then you're setting way too low of an, a bar of the ideal. Um, but it's kind of an asymptotic, messianic approach to life, which is I'm trying to you know strive towards something further away. Okay. Um, so this past summer at CLP, I'm gonna, which is our community leadership program, like show of hands, who is that, who go, who's been to CLP, let's say. All right, woohoo! Okay, so um, Yehuda posed a question um, that some of you may remember, which was basically, he called it, why, why Israel? But he basically asked the question, um, what's the big vision of Israel? Right? We had this whole rich history leading up to, and I see some people looking at sources. There are sources, I think, I haven't decided if I'll use them or not. They're there for you. I think for people who want to go deep, that's fine. And for people who are bored about what I'm saying and you want to just learn Torah, I think if I came here and shared some Torah and you studied in a book and went home, 
That's a win for me also. Just like giving someone a good nap. It's like everybody wins. Um, so uh, Yehuda asked the question at CLP, which is basically, we spent all this time leading up to 48, imagining what is Israel? What could Israel be? What should Israel be? And then kind of we stopped dreaming. Right? We said we, we made it to our destination. Often when you have a dream, if the dream is to have a Jewish state and then you have a Jewish state, then there's, you stop the dreaming. And so how do we come back to the practice of dreaming, of imagining, right? And if the, if the dream or the idea of Israel is love Israel, it's not very sticky. It's not going to last forever. We need something bigger than that, all right? And it can't be, in Yehuda's words, it can't be winning an election. That's my dream of Israel, is winning the next election. It has to be bigger and more broad than that. I'll say, I would argue on a parallel sense, uh, in America, as someone who's a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, I don't know if that gives me more or less of a license, but the idea of never again, the idea of Jewish continuity, I think it also, looking back, might have been too small. It might have been too small of an idea. Um, it was important to stop anti-Semitism. It was important to say Jewish continuity is important, but we didn't ask why Judaism, right? You can't just keep telling each generation, don't let the Jewish thing end, have Jewish kids, if no one's saying, like, why Judaism, right? So I think, you know, Noticing both of those, can we zoom out and say the why Israel question? And can we also say the why Judaism question? And then, of course, um, I've, I've put this in the packet for you, but I don't, we don't have to read it inside. Um, another famous kind of idea that I'll bring in from Hartman, and then I'll, and then I'll add a couple others. Um, there are many different answers to why Israel. Um, David Hartman has a beautiful um, seminal essay called Auschwitz versus Sinai. Can I get a quick show of hands? Who's heard of Auschwitz versus Sinai? Great. Okay. Um, so. We don't need to read it right now, but I think that offers an opportunity to notice what's, what's the paradigm that's shaping the way we think about this. Is it stopping another Auschwitz from happening, or is it, um, or is it something related to the Brit and Sinai and building a state that is reflective of the Brit that happened at Sinai? So that's an example. There could be others, and I think kind of Yehuda has pushed us to think about what is the dream. Maybe that is the dream, or what, let's clarify what our dream is. I want to say that for me, uh, kind of one core idea that has driven me that make, is, affects the way I think about both Israel um, and Judaism in general and kind of like the Jewish project um, is, um, is kind of the Rav Yitz approach to uh, Tzalem Elohim, the idea of being created in God's image, um, uh, which is basically the idea that, um, and I'll offer this as an idea, not the idea, because I think other people can, can, can go where they want to go with it, which is the following, which is um, he takes the idea of God creating the human in, in Betzalem Elohim in God's image, and he uses the Talmud in uh, Sanhedrin. I will say source numbers in case people want to look along. Um, we're now in source number three, in case that's exciting for people. Um, yeah, we're in source number three in the bottom of the page there. I won't read it inside, but the idea that God created the human in God's image and then let's turn, let's look at uh, page number three, source number four. And I want to show you there, I mean, I'm, I, hopefully you've seen this text before. If not, um, it's an amazing text to know. Um, this is in Sanhedrin where uh, the rabbis explain, this is part of a larger conversation around how we warn a witness, but the rabbis explain why it was important. What's the lesson we learned from Adam being created as an individual? Um, and. Uh, I'm trying to think quick. You want to look at it? Someone give me an answer. Should we look at it? Have we seen it? It's old? It's new? Yeah? Go for it. Okay. Amy's saying go for it. Let's go for it. Okay. So, for this reason, Adam was created as a singular individual to teach you that whoever destroys a single soul, 
uh, scripture imputes guilt to that person as though they destroyed a complete world. You probably have heard the short version of that. You know, he who saves, who he who destroys a soul, destroy, destroys the world. He who saves a soul, saves the world. And whoever, whoever preserves a single soul, scripture ascribes merit to that person as though he or she had not preserved a complete world. So the lesson in this one, if I could give a headline, is that each human being is of infinite value. Right? One person is a world. We could break down what that means. Is one person a world because they have kids and their kids have kids and their kids have kids? Or is one person a world because one action leads to a reaction, which leads to a reaction, which leads to a reaction? And there are other ways to interpret as well. But the headline is the value of a human is infinite. Every human is infinitely valuable. The second is that, furthermore, humanity was created singly for the sake of peace among people. That one man I say to another, my ancestor was greater than yours and that the heretics might not, might not say there are many ruling powers in heaven, right? So no one can say, my dad's bigger than your dad, right? Um, no laughs for that at all. Okay, I think different crowd. Okay, um, <laughs> but the idea that uh, each person is literally equal. If we all come from the same person, no one can say, my ancestors are better than your ancestors. Um, ironic today that the three Western religions all go back to Abraham, so that kind of worked out nicely. Um, but that each person is equal. No person is better or worse. And by the way, if you're a math person, if everyone is infinite, I think, Infinite can't be more than infinity. There probably is now some complicated like postdoc math that's like actually infinity plus something is bigger than infinity. But let's imagine that infinity is equal to infinity. And then the third is that to proclaim the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be God, for if a human strikes many coins from one mold, they all come out identical to one another. But the supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, fashioned every person in the mold of the first human, and yet not one of them resembles another. Therefore, every single person is obliged to say, the world was created for my sake. So the first is everyone's infinite, the second is everyone's equal, and the third is that every person is unique, um, which is like the craziest thing, by the way. They're like, just to think of, I mean, also, let's see what happens with cloning and all those things, but let's just imagine in our mind that you are the only version ever in the history of the universe of you. Um, so these are three fundamental dignities. I made a little picture for you guys down there, um, which is uh, just noticing these are, the three, these are the three dignities, being infinitely valuable, equally valuable, and unique. And so Rav Yitz's big idea, what we're going for here, is we're trying to construct a society in which every human being is treated in those ways. That we're trying to move closer to a society where everyone is infinitely valuable, equal in value, and unique. Okay, so, and you can kind of, a couple frameworks to bring that a little bit deeper if it sounds like too up in the sky is I'll say the following. Um, the, the way Rav Yitz tells it is um, when he had uh, a surgery in 2001, um, I think he had a, a heart uh, a bypass surgery, and uh, uh, he saw the medical bills afterwards and saw that even though it was covered by Medicaid, that uh, it, it was a $250,000 surgery, which probably today is like 10 times that, right? Um, but it was a $250,000 surgery, and at the time, his life expectancy was uh, 10 more years. So he said, the US government said, my life is worth uh, $25,000 a year. That's what the US government's saying, which is not infinitely valuable, but it's ascribing serious value to a human. And then he offers the converse, which is, you know, the, I don't know, I'm not keeping up with these things now, but the uh, like places in, in Africa where if we could just get half a penny per child and get a mosquito net, as mosquito net, it would totally change their lives. And there we're falling short of treating a person as equally valuable, infinitely valued, unique. Um, and then going backwards in time, noticing things like a lot of people are rushed to be like, oh, Torah is like totally wrong because it's mean about slaves or it's mean about women or all those things, but noticing actually Torah is trying to move us in a direction. Um, that's supposed to be continued with each, with each generation, if that makes sense. Um, and then also looking forward, this idea of incrementalism, the idea of messianism, asymptotic messianism, the idea that we're trying to move the ball towards this world. It might not happen tomorrow. 
Okay, so I want us to just notice those a little bit. I wanted to notice that as an example, right? So we have Yehuda's question, which was, what's the big idea? What's the big idea of Zionism moving forward? We had, uh, we had David Hartman's offer of Auschwitz versus Sinai, and then I offered Rav Yitz's idea, which was that one way to think about how we, our big idea is, can we build a world um, over time, incrementally, starting with the time of the Torah towards Messianic times, where people are treated infinitely valuable, unique, equal. Okay, that's the ideal. Now I want to talk about the real. Where are we now? Okay, and when I say real, real has to start with the self. Okay, I think we're always quick to be like analyzing what's going on in Israel and elections and all this stuff out there. But like, in Musr, certainly, it starts here. It starts with the one person, right? If you change, I tried to change the world, and it was too hard. I tried to change my country. It was too hard to change my, my state. I tried to change my town. I tried to change myself. And that has made all the difference, right? The idea of looking inward to notice what's the unique role each person plays. And with that, I'm going to bring our first kind of classical Musser source, which is on page four, Mesilat um, Yasharim, which is, this is the opening um, of Mesilat of Yasharim, which um, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, 1738, uh, the, the boy genius, as they say, he lived till 40 and did amazing things in 40 years, which is totally crazy. Uh, he says the following, the foundation of piety and the root of the complete service is that a person should clarify and make real to themselves what is their obligation in their world and toward which ends they should place their long-term vision and practical approach and all that they toil all the days of their life. So the key takeaway here is pausing to notice what's my job, not what needs to be fixed in a hundred different places. What's my job given the unique talents, right? I mentioned my grandfather before. Given the gifts that I have, what's the thing that I need to, how, how, what's my obligation? Not like what could I do, but what's my obligation in the world? Um, I'm gonna skip source seven, but uh, Rob Volby kind of lays out a little bit deeper the idea that like this is, this, is, this is like a huge obligation on your shoulders actually. Like if you live your life without noticing the gifts that you have and every human is infinitely valuable and unique so we know they have gifts, then you've done something wrong. You've kind of missed something. Again, Musser is a little bit uh, uh, tougher. So, um, and then I want to offer along those lines one way to look at ourselves. So Musser has a lot of different ways. If you learn with Rabbi Jaffe, there's kind of like, you know, there's, tw there's 20 midot. There's like kindness and patience and, um, uh, how do you say, dot and like, uh, wisdom, there's, uh, we don't have to go into all of them, but that you could list any character trait that you could think of, let's say, equanimity. Um, I want to look at one approach to how we think about ourselves, and that's from Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler um, from Gateshead, England, um, in uh, a book called Strive for Truth. And that's, it looks like it starts on the bottom of eight, but let's go uh, on the bottom of page four, but we'll go to the next page. And he lays out the following. And again, our goal here is to notice something about ourselves as we come into this broader conversation. Rabbi West before mentioned examples of stories that shape us. Before we get to the stories that shape us, I want to think about the character traits that we are. What's our inner sense? Who are we? Because that shapes us just as much. We have to know, let's call it like the nature and the nurture. So we'll play in nature for a little bit for a few minutes. So nature. There are three fundamental powers found within a person through which one can reach the ultimate good. Each one differs from the other in its root and character. These strengths are chesed, which we've heard, of course, giving, that's how we're, I'm defining it, and that's associated with Abraham, Abraham. Through it, one places their primary interest in others and tries to do good for others and influence them. Okay, so an Abraham person is someone who the driving factor of their lives is doing things for others. They walk into a room and they look around and they notice 
who needs something? Like, how can I make this person feel more welcome? How can I connect to this person? It's very, let's call it horizontally driven. It's looking around the room and trying to connect with them. Um, uh, I would say that Rivka, by the way, is also this, and also Rachel is this, but that's for another time. Um, Yirat Shemaim, number two. Uh, awe of the heavens, this is associated with Isaac, Yitzchak. Um, in contrast to Chesed, whose main focus is outward, Yirat Shemayim is a trait which a person turns inward into themselves in their concern for the consequences of their action. Right? This is about self-discipline. This is about putting the big picture before yourself. This is about, I was saying to Rabbi West, this room is amazing, it like creates a sense of awe. This is about awe. This is about noticing what's bigger than you. Um, uh, and this, um, uh, we see this in Leah, by the way, um, as well. And then we have Emet, Yaakov, truth. The power of demanding the truth clarifies the correct path and service of Hashem without veering right or left, either toward the side of excessive chesed or towards the sides of excessive self-criticism, diminishing the good deeds one can perform. Okay, so here we have a third paradigm as we think about who am I? Who am I the person in this conversation? Because we're not all the same. This is someone who's there focusing on the balance, the truth, clarifying the truth. Of course, these things all go in and out of each other. A sense of emet might lead you to think about uh, chesed differently. A sense of chesed might lead you to think about yira differently. A sense of yira might lead you to think about emet. But noticing in ourselves what type of person we are. We normally find that the unique nature of a person is based principally on one of these three primary traits mentioned above. Generally, one of these traits creates in them their unique spiritual nature through which all of their thoughts and actions are influenced and directed. And I won't read the rest, but basically what he goes on to say is the following. He basically says that um, our goal is to perfect our thing, right? We live in a society where everyone like, is trying to make everyone into the same thing. No, if you're an Emmet person, you don't need to spend your whole life like being a year a person to be more balanced. Become amazing, amazing, amazing at Emmet, at the person that you are. And there will be other people who fit into the other categories. And if later in life you've really accomplished, you're amazing at Emmet, you've gotten to the highest level, then you can add on Yira or Chesed. And I'm raising these things because I want to be clear here because I want us to think about how do we notice who we are when we're showing up in a conversation about Israel, about Judaism? Who's the, who am I when I come to the table? Before we even get to worrying about other people, who am I? What are the things that are driving me? If you've been at Hart, other Hartman classes, you may have heard when we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, my notion of justice versus your notion of justice creates confusion when we have a conversation about justice in Israel. My notion of land, your notion of land creates confusion. My notion of peace, your notion of peace creates confusion. And here I'm saying before we even worry about us having disagreement around notions of external things that shape how we think about Israel, can we notice ourselves, who, who am I showing up in this conversation? Right? Am I someone who's driven by chesed, by emet, by yira, whereas the other person that we're in conversation with could be coming at it totally differently. If, if emet, if truth is the core value I'm using to have a discussion, and someone else is only focused on chesed, and we look at the same problem, we're going to have very different understanding. Okay, so I want to, um, and I did, I did a little cute chart for you, which is source number nine. Um, this, is, like, this, this goes deeper. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it now, but it gives you a sense of, it's not just emet, yira, and chesed. If you think of the, the famous things from Avot around um, the world stands on three things, Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chasadim, they match up perfectly, right? Torah is emet, Avodah is, is yira, awe of God, and Gemilut Chasadim, acts of loving kindness, is chesed. And also the opposite, three things remove a person from the world, the pursuit of honor, lust, and jealousy, right? Pursuit of honor is the opposite of emet. It's like, that's why it removes you from the world. If you're not seeking truth, you're seeking honor, you're going to miss the truth. 
Right? If you're not in an awe relationship with the world, then you're going to be driven by lust. What do I want instead of like self-discipline and what does the world want? And similarly, if you're, if you're someone who's if you're driven by jealousy, taking from others, that's the opposite of kindness towards others. Right? So these things go deep. Again, it's one paradigm. I think it's fine for people to be like, I don't really like paradigms of three, and I want to think about the world differently. But I think the headline is, where do I come from? And this is an example of a way that goes deep. Okay, now I want to talk about nurture. All right, so we spoke a little bit about noticing our nature in a conversation. I want to talk about nurture. I put a, a picture of the Knicks and the Celtics here. Why did I do that? I actually originally wrote a whole introduction about the Celtics, and I didn't want to spend that much time on it. Um, I have a ton of connections to Boston. I grew up a serious, serious Knicks fan. Um, uh, and uh, my, th I, whatever, I won't tell the whole story, but I think the headline is basically, I grew up like my father told stories about Walt Clyde Frazier and Willis Reed, the captain, and Earl the Pearl Monroe. And these were like the heroes of my youth, right? Um, who my father told me about. And then I grew up in the 90s when the Knicks like had this like second run at being great. They didn't win any championships. We had like Patrick Ewing and John Starks. If you don't know anything about sports, just trust me, but it makes sense. And then um, I did not grow up with any hatred for the Celtics because it happened to be the years that the Knicks that I was growing up, the Celtics were terrible. I was post Larry Bird, like pre Kevin Garnett. So it was, were, the Celtics were terrible during that time. So I had no ill will towards the Celtics, um, which my father, of course, did because he grew up like really hating the Celtics. And then I lived in Boston. And I, my first year here was the terrible year before they got Kevin Garnett. And I spent the whole year being like, I live in Boston, so I'll watch Celtics on TV and see what happens. And then all of a sudden, they got two amazing players, Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen, and they became like a mini dynasty overnight. And meanwhile, the Knicks were like the most embarrassing team on the planet. I was so mad at the owner for all the bad choices they made. And I found myself like rooting for the Celtics. Um, and it was this bizarre experience where my, like, my family was literally like, what's wrong with you? You cannot root for the Celtics. And I'm like, I love the Celtics. Um, and it was and, and like that kind of like tension that came up. Um, it's actually funny that they're playing Thursday night, and I'm like, who would I root for these days? But I think um, I, I'm raising it because it's this thing which is like, I think my father would least expect me ever to become a Celtics fan. Um, and then, I, by the way, I'm still a Knicks fan, don't worry. I can't avoid it. They're terrible, and I have to root for them anyway. It's just like in my kishkas forever. Um, but I have a place in my heart for the Celtics as well from my time here. And by the way, my wife's family are all Boston people. And so uh, my, my father-in-law was at Harvard Medical and uh, a million other things that I can't always remember. Um, but they spent a lot of time in Boston. So they're all Celtics fans, by the way. So I have this weird dynamic that half the family root for the Celtics. I'm sharing that because it's an example, a low-level example, of the way in which the way we go through the world shapes our experiences. Um, and I want to go back to what Rabbi West opened with, which was this idea of what are, the, what are the events that shape our lives, broadly but specifically around Israel. Right? This is a huge problem with this conversation across generations consistently is this who grew up with 48, who grew up with 67, who grew up with Ethiopian Jewry, who grew up with Soviet Jewry movement. But I was right after that. I was, Rabin's assassination was like the big moment for me. It was like, whoa, and I remember that so deeply in my mind. Right? But, and the people that are growing up now have the like, you know, uh, um, the startup nation, let's say, right? Which is a totally different thing than Rabin, um, right? It's actually, not to go back to Knicks and Celtics, but we all talk about in New Jersey that none of our kids are gonna be serious Knicks fans, because the Knicks are terrible. If you have your whole childhood, they're not good. You're not going to like get stuck to it. So if there's nothing exciting to jump onto, I'll say for me, my kind of my four big, aside from Rabin, my four big Israel experiences, and I, I offer them as examples. One was when I went in sixth grade. 
Um, I was just getting like seriously into Judaism. I was like keeping Shabbat. I was like learning whatever I could learn. Um, and I got to Israel and discovered that it was not a Shomer Shabbat country. Um, which like, I know, right? Um, it literally was the most like, it just totally shifted. I was like, what? I was like, don't they read Tanakh? Don't they know if they don't keep Shabbat, Hashem will kick them out of the land. Um, what's going on here? So I think that was like a first moment where I was like, like my, I had this aha moment that shifted the way I understand what Israel's about, what Israel could and should be. But that was a big aha moment for me. The second, actually, of all places, nothing to do with Hartman, but happened in the Hartman basketball court at the Mahon there at the high school, um, which was when I was at Pardes, that I, my hard-earned LSAT year at Pardes, um, I, we, we used to play basketball at the Mahon on Fridays, and we had like a tool, so we played a week early one week, and we went in, and we, start, we started playing, or we played, whatever it was, it was a different time than usual, and a group of Israelis showed up like midway through our game and said, we're here to play soccer. And we said, great, we're playing basketball. So there's like, if you can imagine a basketball court, instead of going the long way, there's like two short ways, um, right? There's, there's a geometrical term for that. Let's play, you guys play soccer there, we'll play basketball over here. Um, and the Israelis were like, no, we're gonna, this is, we play soccer now, get off the court. And we were like going back and forth. Um, and then uh, uh, one of the Israelis actually headbutt my friend. Um, and I know it's like on one it's like laugh because it was a long time ago. It's also like whoa. Um, and uh, I was in shock. I literally was like, how could this happen? And I said to my friend, I was like, I don't understand. I started screaming back to them, Anachnu Achim, Anachnu Achim, we're brothers, we're brothers. Like, how could you do this? How could you headbutt another Jew? We're in the Jewish state. If this was Central Park and a Jew headbutt another Jew, I, there would be no discussion. We would just leave. But in Israel, I had this vision in my mind of. We are brothers in Israel. We don't headbutt each other. We all love each other. There is no crime. There's only love, all those things. And that was another aha moment, right? Which is like, again, these are so obvious in some ways, but like Israel is a country with humans. And some of them headbutt people when they don't get what they want, right? Um, and so that was a number two, another aha moment for me. Um, the third was um, I had the amazing, let's call it schut, merit, when Tali, my wife, and I first got married to live in Israel. So uh, we got married, I think, uh, I think, we got married March 30th of 2014. I was going to relate it to Perm, but now I can't remember. I think it was before Perm, because I think we did Perm in Israel, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, we got married, and I was in yeshiva in Israel, and she had just finished um, uh, uh, her residence um, for becoming a dietitian. And she came to join me, and it was amazing. And um, that summer um, was the summer of, of Gush, where the three uh, students were abducted and, and, and murdered. Um, and I remember feeling that was that was like my on the ground in Israel moment. That was my whoa. That was my oh my god. Um, and for me, I think in some ways I would say that I, I actually part of why I turned to Musser was because of that. Because I felt like this thing is bigger than me, and no small thing that I do as Justin is going to change that tomorrow. I need to spend time focusing on how I can make the world better in my Dalit Amot, in like what's in front of me and build towards that. If I can't like pull political levers, how can I show up meaningfully as a human, right? It's not an excuse. I can't spend all day angry about Israel and not have healthy relationships with the people in my life. Um, I think fast forward to working at Hartman, um, when I came to first work at Hartman, Israel was not like my like number one thing I was pushing for in my agenda because I'm a Muslim person, right? It was more like, if everyone would just treat each other with kavod, if we would create a world where everyone was infinitely valuable, equal, and unique, we'd be fine. Why do we have to worry about politics? Um, and I think Hartman kind of pushed me to be like, that's not enough. 
It's not enough. You can't live in the time of Israel. And I say Hartman, but I mean the Beit Midrash, being around colleagues and having conversations. You can't live in the time of Israel and not think about the way that you are going to be in conversation with what's happening in Israel. That's the challenge of this time. That's one of the challenges of this time. You need to be in conversation with this time. So those are a couple, just to go to Wes's, Rabbi Wes's point, around uh, things that shape the way that I think about and thought about Israel. Okay, now I want to move. So we talked a little bit around the big questions and the ideal. We talked about nature. We talked about nurture. Those shape who we are. Now I want to zoom out from one person and talk about the individual as part of the collective. Right? What is the individual? How do, now, that I have, now that I've spent time, which I think is step one, getting a better understanding of who I am, what are the stories that have shaped me? What are the characteristics that are unique to me? I'm the only version of me in the history of the universe. What has Hashem given me outside of me and inside of me? Then we think about how do we come back to the questions we had before? Um, how do we be in conversation with others? Um, and so let's start with Sinai. I want to revisit Sinai, right? I mentioned that David Hartman uh, uh, spoke about Auschwitz versus Sinai. The first thing I want to just say about Sinai is, yes, it is a moment of breed, as he lays out beautifully in that essay. But also imagine being at Sinai. For me, there's two other huge things at Sinai, which is being with your family at this moment and also being with the larger community at this moment. Right? So noticing the individual showing up as part of a broader family and also the individual showing up as part of a broader community. Um, and then I want to say the following about that. There's a source in here. We don't have to read it inside. I'll just tell you it outside, um, which is... Beautifully, if you look, if you, like, we're only up to Perm, we're up to Pesach, but uh, in Dayenu, you can look at just that line in Dayenu, why don't we look at that, number, uh, in source 12, page 8, um, if he would have brought us close, or if God would have brought us close to Mount Sinai, but not given us the Torah Dayenu, it would have been sufficient for us, right? An interesting thing, why just get to, to Mount Sinai without actually receiving the Torah, what's going on there? Um, and so these rabbis here, who I recommend their book, buy it, read it on your own time, it's amazing, I'm Rabbi Yosef Lin and Rabbi Jack Cohen, uh, they make the case that we were a divided nation. We were a nation that didn't, we had just been attacked by Amalek. We were going through the desert. We didn't have a vision of where, where we left Egypt. We just got attacked in the desert. Like everyone's disagreeing about what this could be. And then they come and kind of come around the clearing. I don't know if there's really clearings in the desert, but let's pretend there are. And they see this mountain up ahead. And of course, we all know that Mount Sinai is not this huge, imposing mountain. It's a smaller mountain. And often we focus on calling it like humility or humbleness. That's usually the angle. Um, I think that's a misnomer for what humility is in Judaism. Um, but the way they phrase it is that the moment of Mount Sinai was recognizing that this hill was just being this hill. Right? Mount Sinai was ra like rising to the occasion of being Mount Sinai only. And that's the challenge. Right? The challenge is not to be, right? we talked about ourselves as individuals, as part of the group, what does it mean to rise to the challenge of being ourselves? Right? And even that, if we think about that through an Israel context, right, is what does it mean if our, our hopes and dreams for Israel is that Israel can rise to the challenge of being Israel? Right? Think about that for a second because we have a lot of projected things onto Israel, but what does it mean for Israel to rise to the challenge of being Israel? You know, and you can think about that for ourselves also. Can we be in conversations? When we think about our community, can we look around and see people that are um, uh, rising to the occasion of being themselves? Um, and along those lines, uh, this I think will be fun to look at visually, actually. Let's go to um, uh, source number 13 on page nine. Uh, nine which says the following, it not says, it's just a picture basically. Um, so as we think about what it means to rise to the 
occasion of being ourselves in the context of this family community at Mount Sinai. I just want to point out, I'm sorry, I think we had, we had English, but there, it's not here, I lost it. The name Yisrael is an amalgamation of our foreparents, whatever you want to call it, our matriarchs and patriarchs. So the Yud is Yitzchak, Isaac, and Yaakov, Jacob. The Sin is Sarah, Sarah. The Resh is Rivka, Rebecca, or Rachel, Rachel. The Aleph is Abraham, Abraham, and the Lamed is Leah. Leah, Leah is Leah, right? English for Leah is Leah. Um, pause to notice that for a second, right? As we think about one person, you're a chesed person, you're a person driven by year, you're whoever you are, you're the only version of yourself. Notice that from the beginning of Breshi, we have this paradigm set up, which is that Yisrael, what that means, consists of multiple soul roots, right? We have these soul roots that go down through different people, and we're trying to figure out where we fit into that. And if you're a Yud, spending all your time being angry at Rashes for not being Yuds is gonna get us nowhere. But seeing a beautiful uh, tapestry of the Yuds and the Sins and the Rashes and the Alephs and the Lamids, that's a different vision, right? And that comes through all of Tanakh, right? Tanakh is a story of people, right? We're gonna, now we're getting into Shemot now. We have Moshe and Miriam and Aaron, Aaron, and later we have Pinchas, right? we have like, and then we have all the people in Nach, we have Shmuel, my namesake. We have all these different versions of people that come through, and so noticing that also, when we look to the community around us, noticing that we're not trying to push people into hold. I saw a beautiful thing that I didn't bring for you guys, which was that um, Rebecca and Isaac's mistake as parents was trying to raise two Jacobs, right? They had a vision of what their child should be, and that was what Jacob was, and they tried to raise two Jacobs, and if you try to raise an Esav as a Jacob, you're gonna end up with an Esav who's out of the house and doing things that are totally not in line with what's going on in the house. And the challenge is, and this is, I'm getting into parenting now, but I think it's true for this conversation more broadly, which is noticing not trying to make an Esav into a Yaakov, trying to make an Esav into an Esav. And so when we think about being in conversation with others, when we think about the different, let's call them tribes of Israel, you know, noticing who am I? And then also noticing, oh, I fit into a tapestry here. Who are the other people in the tapestry? How do I have the conversations I want to have with them that are different? And what do they bring to the table? And how beautiful is that? My, my friend Dan, who I love to quote, um, says, people are people. It's like, uh, that's his Torah. People are people. And I think like my wife and I always, like anytime we're, we're interacting with someone, it's like, oh, that person's doing this thing. That's not the way that we do it. We're like, oh, wait. People are people. Like, let's celebrate this person living the way they live instead of being so obsessed with the fact that they don't do things the way we do. And by the way, often over such trivial things, right? But can we notice that? Of course, when the stakes are higher, we'll get to that in a second, but when the stakes are higher, there needs to be not just like, I accept people are people, but I think also not judgment. There needs to be curiosity. Okay, so um, the next uh, source kind of takes it to the future. Um, we have this idea from Sanhedrin, what is the name of Messiah, of Mashiach? The Beit Midrash, or the house of study of Rabbi Shila says, Shiloh is the name of Messiah. The Beit Midrash of Rabbi Yanai says, Yenon is the name of Messiah. The Beit Midrash of Rabbi Hanina says, Hanina is the name of Messiah. So the cynical reading of this is, uh, everyone thinks they're so great. But I would say the beautiful reading of this is, everyone needs to be great. Right? The only way we bring Messiah is if each Beit Midrash is behaving in a way that is like reaching, you know, rising to the occasion of being themselves, to being the most beautiful version of themselves. And you need all three of those Batei Midrash. You need the different tribes, the different approaches in order to bring the Messiah. It has to be, we need everyone to show up in their way. 
Um, and we need to celebrate people's differences, and we, and, but it needs to be a community. It needs to be Yisrael, not just like the Yuds are over there and the Sins are over there. And so we can imagine the starting with our four parents. How do you say that? Matriarchs and patriarchs. I'll just say it's easier. Matriarchs and patriarchs, and going all the way to the time of the rabbis and into the future of thinking about um, of the Messiah. So now let's, so that's a little bit around thinking about, I know who I am, my nature and nurture. I know how I fit in to the larger group. And now I want to come to this question that we've hinted at, but I want to get at actually now, which is how do you close the gap? How do you bridge the gap between the ideal and the real? And also implicit in that is what do you do with the people who it's bothering you that they're being a and not a Raish, right? The, the, the moments of challenge and conflict. And so um, I want to introduce through that the idea of a few things. First, I want to say the Musser, core Musser idea is focusing on the how and not always the what. So the way in which we go through the world, the stance we take towards others, yes, we have goals for the future, but it's also about how we show up while keeping your eye on the goal. And I think one core, core Musser idea that I want to bring is what's called Heat Lamdut, which was taught to me by Rabbi David Jaffe probably 10 years ago now. Um, Heat Lamdut, is that a word anyone knows? People know a little bit? Yeah? Okay. So Heat Lamdut is, um, I'm not going to read the source inside, but it's basically taking a learning stance. Okay. This means in all matters of life, you are constantly trying to learn from others. All the time. That's what your brain's on. Okay, whatever you're going through, you're learning from others. Um, it means uh, Rav Volbi, who introduced it, Rav Shlomo Volbi, who's um, died in 2008. He's a Haredi Musar master. Um, he, he lays out that there's a lot of upsides to it. I don't want to do a class on Elam Dut now, but I'll say that he talks about it so dramatically that you are learning the whole scope of your life. And even when you die, you don't die, you learn how to die. Right? So think about that for a second. Right? We don't talk a lot about aging and dying in our community. It's a, you know, we, we stay away from it, and I think there's reason for that. But what does it mean to learn how to die? And so his approach is, we always have to have this antenna on. Um, another rabbi, Rabbi Simchazit Ziv, says, we want to be great merchants. You don't want to be the merchant who, I'm a shoe salesman, so I notice everyone's shoes. I'm a hat salesman, so I notice everyone's hats. You want to be the person who walks into the room and notices the shoes, the hats. It's a metaphor, obviously. Everything going on in the room. Right? That's the, the, the way we want to approach our lives. And I think the kind of the paradigmatic text of this um, is... Uh, um, the Pirkeavot, which is source 15 here, Ben Zoma says, who is wise? One who learns from every person. And the Bartonur, the commentary on it says, one who learns from every person, even though the other person is of lesser stature, since they are not concerned for their own honor and are willing to learn from those of lesser stature, it is evident that the wisdom they acquire is for the sake of heaven and not simply for them to show off and aggrandize themselves through it. So again, we thought we said before, the person who's pursuing honor is the opposite of the person who's pursuing Torah. If you're seeking truth, if you're actually trying to clarify truth, if you're trying to move forward, it has to come from a stance of learning from every person. Um, and I'll say just a couple things on that. Um, and you can imagine, by the way, what does it mean to, to go through your life this way? Um, a couple things on that point. One is, um, also quick show of hands, just an example. Um, Ambassador David Friedman's book. Who has read it? Show of hands. That's what I was hoping for. Great, beautiful. So I don't want to project uh, uh, assumptions, but how crazy is that? Let's pause. By the way, I didn't like it was not on my radar. I happened to be in Boca last Shabbat, and someone in Boca, which um, is a slightly different community than here, recommended that I read it. Um, it was, and and I will just say for a second that there was a Jew, a fellow Jew, who was ambassador 
to Israel from the United States, who in, I think, objectively, you could argue, one of the most influential ambassadors to any country in U.S. history. You could debate the politics, but some major things happened during that person's time. And like, if we're going to have a heat lamdut stance, if we're going to have a stance of learning from the Yud, the Sin, the Resh, the Aleph, the Lamid, like, I'm not pushing that book at all, but I think you get the idea, right? Which is the idea is like, how do we get out of the small circle we're in and how do we hear other stories? Because you could disagree with 99% of what he had to say, but it's, it, I, I was curious to be like, well, this person lived through crazy, like, uh, embassy moved to Jerusalem, peace with the Arab world. Like, those are big, big things that happened in the history of Israel. And like, I think in some circles, it was kind of just like, like it, it, their politics got stuck in the middle, let's say. And you could still disagree. Maybe neither of those things should have happened. Maybe you're like, I don't want peace in the Arab world until there's peace with Palestinians, whatever you think. But I think like noticing what are things outside of our mini circle that we can bring Hitlam do towards, that we can sit, take a sense of curiosity to take in something that's not our way of thinking consistently. Um, and I, as I have been teaching my kids forever, we'll see if it sticks with them, like once you're doing that Hitlam do, noticing what to copy or not copy. Right, that's a whole big piece of it, right? It's not necessarily like we learn and copy, but can we have the antenna of learning from everyone and then deciding what to copy and not let honor or politics get in the way of us learning from others? Um, I'll say that uh, um, within that is the challenge of what do, we, what do we focus our learning on, let's say. I remember, do you guys know Jordan Soffer? He's the head of school in this area. Anyone? Yeah? All right. Great. So Jordan Safra, I remember we were in Chobabe together and he had a terrible internship. They had nothing for him to do. And I was like, Jordan, he, I'm dude. Like, what are, they have you sitting alone at a table. Learn something while you're sitting at the table. And he's like, no, no, no. This is like, I'm trying to like develop a skill here. So like, I actually want to like develop the skill on my internship. So I don't want to pretend that all learning is equal. And along those lines, I want us to notice sometimes might Israel be a red herring a little bit in our Judaism. Did I say that? Or you, you've heard your eyes because of what I said, or I used the wrong phrase? The first one? What is it? Great, great, so beautiful. So yes, I'm not here to tell you to stop caring or thinking about Israel, but I will say at the same time, I think one might make the argument that sometimes we do a very good job of obsessing about Israel to avoid other important questions. I might throw that out there. Maybe that's a crazy thing to think about. Um, you know, and, and sometimes maybe our obsessing over fighting about Israel and less fighting about, like, I don't know, pick your thing. The way our home should look Jewishly or the conversations we should have with people that we hate or the people that we love or whatever, pick your thing. But I think it's very easy to read more articles and sometimes we might miss something else in the, in the fray. And you figure out for yourselves what the thing is. Um, I'm the opposite. I was someone who was ignoring Israel and now I'm like really trying to embrace and, and get deeper into Israel. But I think, you know, noticing that, where do we want to put our Hitlam antenna towards? Where do we want to focus on? Um, and then uh, I want to offer a Midrash that I think is very powerful along those lines as well. Uh, I think we have, yeah, let's read it and then I'll summarize. Great, let's read it, which is um, number 18 here. Actually, I changed my mind. I'm not gonna read it, I saw the time because I forgot about 19, which is awesome and I wanna get to 19. So 18 uh, uh, is basically a midrash which says the following. We have, we talked about at the beginning, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Abraham is chesed, Yitzchak is um, awe, and Yaakov is emet, is truth. And so the Midrash lays out that each of them uh, asked for a kli, an instrument from God. Abraham, whose kindness said, God, when a man and his son walk into my tent, I don't know which one is older. I don't know how to give them respect. Could you invent old age so I could tell the difference between the older and the younger? 
And God says, poof, Abraham is the first person in Torah who becomes old. And so he gets the clea and then he's able to do that. So the, the, the idea of one growing older is an instrument for Abraham to pursue his core identity, which is chesed. When it comes to Yitzhak, Yitzhak says, for to have true awe, you need suffering. To really understand that the world is bigger than you, it can't be la-di-da all the time, you need some suffering. And so God says, poof, same for you. And for uh, Isaac, it's um, blindness, that Isaac becomes blind. Okay, and then for uh, Jacob, for Emmet, so Jacob's thing is about truth. Jacob says, God, how can I um, lay out the world past me? I'm the first person to ever bless my grandchildren. I want to be the first person to have my children go on past me without fighting and separating. Um, so God, can you give us illness? Can you give us a two or three day notice before you die? Can I have like a few days before at the end so I have heads up? Because before that, you just died suddenly. And so he's granted that as well. We, he's the first person to mention, it says Yosef found out that his father was sick. Right? And I mentioned these, I'm not, I don't wanna have a theodicy discussion. I don't wanna like put suffering on a pedestal. That's not what I'm here to do. But I wanna notice, what does it mean when we have a heat lamb dude stance to notice old age, suffering, illness as not wonderful things because they're opportunity for growth, but terrible things that also are opportunities for growth. And then when we think about our unique moment in time, what's our clee? So on a communal level, we have these two huge clees. We have these two huge instruments that we're thinking our way through, which is um, uh, the question of what does it mean to be a powerful minority in America? Right? This is from no home to two homes is what Hartman calls this. What does it mean to be a powerful minority in North America? And what does it mean to be living in the time of Israel? Right? Our Jew like we have to think about the opportunities for growth. What are the next steps? Right? We're coming back to our ideal and our real when we think about the long term. Not Israel tomorrow, not winning the next election, but what is our vision for Israel and how can it be a clea? How can it be an instrument? If you're a chesed person, how can you f like... Uh, flow your chesed through the Israel question. If you're an emet person, how can you flow your emet through the chesed person? If you're a, you get the idea. And if other people are not the same as you, what we said before, how can you notice the difference? All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to source 19. I wanted to read it inside, but I'll just say it outside, which I think is another really, really important um, piece to bring this all home, which is the following. Uh, the Talmud in Brachot says that if we see a large multitude of people, okay, you imagine a massive multitude of people, perhaps at Har Sinai, right, to go back to Asher's verse Sinai, uh, there's an interesting blessing. We say, Baruch Hacham Harazim, blessed is the knower of secrets, right? That's what we say. We bless God for being the knower of secrets when we see a massive multitude of people. Um, and Rabbi Beryl Gershenfeld here lays out kind of an interesting take on that, which is as follows, which is that um, when a person looks at a multitude, they experience fear or they experience stereotypes. Here's this huge chunk of people that vote differently than me. Here's this huge chunk of people that live in a different town than me. Here's this huge chunk of people that read different things than me. And in God's, when God looks at those people, God sees secrets. Each person is a, a secret to be unlocked. A person that if you dig deep enough, there's a whole beautiful, remember, unique, infinite, equal. There's a whole beautiful person in there. And so for God, it's not thousands of people in all directions or hundreds of thousands of people that you can't make it apart. It's there are individual secrets to be unpacked. And actually, if you look at the word, hacham harazim, raz is the idea of secret. If you switch that, you get zar. You get the idea of something that's strange or foreign. Right? So how do we take someone and turn them from a stranger or someone foreign into someone who's a secret that we're uncovering? And by the way, I'll go off here just to say that this is true for like multitudes. This is also true for like 
people we live with sometimes, right? We, we like, uh, my most favorite example that I share from this, and, and then I'll close up after that, is um, pillows. What do I mean by pillows? When I first got married to my wife, Tali, Aisha's Chayel, love of my life, uh, she, we, we, I lived alone before that. I had one pillow, and then I got married, and suddenly I had 12 pillows, um, right? And it was like, there were big pillows and small pillows and round pillows and rectangle pillows and all this whole thing. Um, and I was like, what is happening right now? Um, and not only that, but like, Tali would say, could you remove all the pillows before we go to sleep? And then in the morning, could you put all 12 pillows back in? And I was just like, what? This? And I spent like years of my marriage being like, you can imagine what I was feeling. I won't say it out loud. I was just like, this isn't totally insane what's happening right now, right? And so I was making Tali into a stranger. I was making assumptions about what her motivations were and what was driving her life, right? And I was making no sense of heat lamdu, no sense of curiosity, no sense of like, what are the things that drive her? And so finally, one day, thank you, Musser, um, I said to Tali, what's the deal with the pillows, right? You mentioned Seinfeld before. What's the deal with the pillows? And she said to me, for me, after a long, stressful day, to walk into our bedroom and see beautiful pillows set up on our bed brings me joy. It's the aesthetic moment, that pleasing moment of walking in and seeing a clean, made bed with pillows on it helps me to relax. Um, by the way, that's not my core identity. I'm not aesthetically driven in the way that Tali is. And it's important for me to not be like, well, that's, I disagree. It's important for me to be like, that's your identity and that's amazing that it feels that way. And now when I pick up the pillows and I pick them off, it's a totally different experience. So I'm like, oh, here's this thing that makes my wife really happy. I understand why. And here's an opportunity for me to do that for her. Um, and I, I think we could, as we think about some of the themes we talked about today, we could zoom out and notice like, what does it mean to start with that question. What does it mean to, when we're in the face of, you know, we, we said, let's, you know, let's zoom out. What's my ideal? What's my real? Who am I in all of that? And now I think about who am I? What's my nature? What's my nurture? Then I want to talk about how can I be in conversations with others? And then once I see that others are different from me, but we're part of a larger project, how do I close the gap? There needs to be curiosity towards the others. There needs to be questions towards the others. It can't just be like, I know the end of the story because whatever driving forces are forcing us to see people as a multitude. Can we have that larger curiosity towards them? Um, I'm gonna stop there and see if there's any questions. Cool. Thanks. Let me invite anyone who would like to ask Justin some questions to do so. Any questions? Oh, we have a hand up. Anyone want to ask any questions? So I'll ask a question. Please. Um, what's the so what of this whole presentation? Mm. In other words, you gave us so much to think about. The ideal and the real and closing the gap and nature and nurture and, who, and what's, what's my thing, what's my gift, how do I give it and how do I see myself in a system with other people, et cetera. So a lot of amazingly profound ideas, evocative ideas that will give us stuff to think about. And now let me ask you this. Let's say I put it all together. What's the difference this presentation makes? Mm -hmm. uh, how do I act differently in light of all these thoughtful sources that you've shared with us? Great. Thank you. Thanks for the question. So for me, I think the so what is as follows, which is it's very easy to get lost in like, one might imagine a situation in which there are political occurrences in Israel that are causing people to get very, very upset. Can anyone imagine that? 
Yes, maybe. Okay, great. Um, and one can imagine uh, how we think about those challenges, um, both in terms of making, let's call it, I don't even want to say assumptions, but like, yeah, making assumptions about what's going on there and what's right or wrong, and also as a human, how to be in the world, given the stress around those assumptions, let's say. Um, and I think what I'm trying to say is I want us to zoom out first and recalibrate how we are in the world, which can better prepare us not for this particular moment, but also for this particular moment, if that makes sense. Um, and I think, like I said, if it's, if it's about one political fight, if it's about one election, if it's about I'm right and you're wrong, that's going to probably cause a lot of pain. And not like not because of what's happening right now. It's going to happen in general over and over again. If it's I have my eye on a prize that is long term and I want to think about how to build a community that's in line with me in building a prize that's long term and I figure out how I fit in, I think that's a, I think, I don't want to say healthier because that sounds like I'm like a scientist. I'm not a scientist. But I think that's a um, more shalem, like a more wholesome way to approach some of these difficult conversations and how we show up in them in a way that feels like we're, it's meaningful and not kind of like screaming at each other. Is that, get at it? Push me further, please. Uh, well, here's just, here's, here's a, a recurrent tension that I sense in my own soul and I sense within our community. It, it's not the Torah Gemul Chassid, Torah Avodah Gemul Chassid, or the Abraham Isaac Jacob corollary, but it's, it's a different set of creative tensions, which is um, there are those of us who are by nature more focused on uh, compassion to the, those more vulnerable. Our Jewish values, this, the Torah says 36 times, care for those mm -hmm. who are vulnerable. And then there's others of us who are more inclined to say, Self-preservation. Mm -hmm. The dead don't praise God. Um, what do you say? The dead do not praise God. Okay. Right. And so, what I want to focus on is that we're here and that we exist, and we are in a bad neighborhood, and that's much more important to me than how we are towards the uh, vulnerable. And the others who say, "What are you talking about? If we..." I just focus on self-preservation and we're not focused on the vulnerable, then where's the Jewish part of the Jewish state? So I guess I'm, what I'm trying to think through is that's a dynamic. Do we focus on self-preservation? Do we focus on justice and compassion? And how does this presentation help us think through that creative tension? Great. So first, I just want to say that I never heard that interpretation of that's amazing. I always thought it was like uh, the idea of the dead don't praise God. I always thought it was like make your time on the planet count because you can't praise God when you're dead, but I never heard of it as a self-preservation drosh, so that was cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, I think, so I think you're getting at it, and I saw there's a question there too, we'll come to you in one second. Um, uh, I think you're getting at some of the tension that I'm trying to raise, which is I don't think it should be, um, you offered it as a binary, but let's call it like a trinary. I don't think it has to be an either or. I think part of it is noticing how am I showing up here. And by the way, I don't want to make it like, the left are chesed and the right is uh, yira. Oh, I don't think it's that simple either. I think it's more just noticing what's driving someone in a conversation. I think that's okay. I think it's okay for someone to be like, I see suffering happening. I want to put an end to it. That's all I'm thinking about right now. And I think it's okay for someone else to say, I'm driven by an ideal that has nothing to do with my wants or needs. It has nothing to do with me. This is just a mission that I'm supposed to do my job 
And that's what it is. And by the way, of course, someone who's driven by that mission might be like, and part of that mission is helping the people that are suffering, but at their core, what's pushing them, or someone who at their core is like, no, I'm driven by understanding multiple sides of an argument and trying to find some way to weave through the middle. And I think becoming, again, not because each side is one of those things, but noticing when we're in conversation, what's driving the person in that moment, I think is a key piece to let's call it healthier conversations around those things, that makes sense. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Other, yes, uh, Rick Thal. Thank you very much for being here tonight um, and for talking about Musar. My question is this with uh, two seconds of background. Along with four or five other people in here, we've been um, practicing learning Musar for the past five years, including starting with David Jaffe, who is a gift from God. Yeah, okay. we all are unique, infinite, equal, but yes, for he, sure. He, he, he's, he's fabulous. My question is this, no one knows about Musar, and should more people know about it, and why don't people know more about it? Okay, uh, <laughs> um, I think, let's define Musar a few different ways, if that makes sense. Um, I think if we're gonna talk, Musar, I think you can argue all of Torah is Musar, like Musar in terms of ethical teaching, you know, Perkei Avot, uh, ethics of our fathers is ethical teaching and Torah is as well. So certainly that's embedded in, um, but let's talk about two other pieces, which is um, the Muslim movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and I think Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's, let's call it like Chidush, his, his um, innovation was, um, uh, and I'll give a plug, me and Rabbi Yitz have a book on this coming out, so when it comes out, for Ella, look, look out for it. Um, uh, the idea of how to respond to modernity. The idea of in a world where Jews no longer are forced to opt into Judaism, how does Judaism move forward? I think that question that he raised, and others as well, but I think that he really, like, in some ways pushed for it early on, is a question that everyone is grappling with. They might not use the word Musser, but certainly anyone, I mean, pick any of the movements. They're all a reaction in some way to um, here's this new world that's coming. How do we maintain what Judaism is um, in conversation with that? And I think an important piece of what he brought up was this sense that um, Judaism is not just ritual. Right? I think a big mistake we made in America was like, oh, if I want to do Jewish, I like candles. If I want to be ethical, I just like look to, I don't know, Netflix, movies, democracy, capitalism, that's where I should learn from. Um, and I think um, that's a place where we really have kind of fallen off. And I think that there's a little bit of a boomerang coming back in that direction. I think now that we're in this world where it's like, you're living in the internet and it's telling you what to think a little bit. I think people are starting to realize that they wanna be able to step out of it and think more meaningfully around like, what's the Jewish voice on this topic that's not a ritual topic, that's a human to human topic. So I think, I think that's gonna change, but I think that like, that was a mistake that we made, I would say. Then their second piece, I was talking about Musar movement, now let's talk about Musar practice, right? So you're in a VOD, which is amazing. You're learning that's a group of people coming together consistently to work on themselves. Um, why isn't that happening more? Um, it should, I guess is the answer. But I think, um, I think even there, there's been a move in our culture towards, let's call it self-help, um, which I don't think is the same as Musar, but I think that shows an inkling of interest in that direction. Um, and I think that'll change as well. I think it's growing both in the Orthodox world it's coming back a little bit, and I think in the non-Orthodox world it's coming back um, as well, if that makes sense. And uh, the last thing I'll say is I think that people for some reason pit Hasidut against Musser, and Hasidut's very popular, so people think you can't do Musser and Hasidut, which comes back to what we're talking about tonight, which is like, yeah, you can. You can think of two different ways of showing up in the world, and you can take from both, but people, we need to like, 
bring that back together. Yeah. Uh, Justin, uh, one of the light oh, motifs of your talk has been about showing up. Yeah. So we are so grateful to you for showing up tonight. You not only showed up, but you left us with so much to think about and so much content. And I am now going to marinate on, um, on the difference that your Torah makes uh, in, in how we do dialogue and how we do life. So thank you for that. And we'll, um, I want to say in terms of continued study and continued ethics, two things. One is uh, join Justin uh, over the summer in Jerusalem, June 21 to June 28 with the CLP, Community Leadership Program at Hartman. The topic is the choosing people, community and meaning in an age of individualism. So not the chosen people, but how do we have agency? Um, how do we have agency in making meaning in this complicated world? And that will be done, plus Israel today and all the complexities will all be encountered. So it's timeless and it's urgent, it's timeless and it's timely, all in the same week, June 21 to June 28. Um, and also, our next event here is gonna be Monday night, February 27th, and Yossi Klein Halevi will be here. And he is also, of course, a very prominent person talking about the ethics of modern Israel given the politics of modern Israel. So February 27th, Join us for Yessi Klein Halevi, and please consider coming with us to Hartman this summer. Emily. Thank you so much. Thank you to Rabbi Justin Pines. Thank you to Rabbi West and the clergy team, Amy and Brian, and this whole lovely community. Um, there is, in the similar spectrum of the real and the ideal, the ideal is that I have coffee with each and every one of you, but the real is that that hasn't happened yet. So please come find me if you want to hear about more opportunities to plug in to Hartman in Boston. Um, and then also we have a really special opportunity next month. We have Yossi Klein-Alevi coming here, um, speaking here on Monday night. Um, but then we will also have opportunities to hear some other faculty who are visiting this coming semester, the coming spring season, um, with Dr. Michal Bitone, who will also be here around the same time frame and will plug in opportunities you can learn from her as well, um, and culminating with Danielle Hartman coming in May. All of this is part of our Spark cohort series with the CJP, who is one of our, our biggest partners here in Boston. But if you have any questions, any ideas about how you want to make um, Hartman in Boston thrive, please don't hesitate to come find me. Um, and I'd love to pick your brain and see what we can do together. Thank you so much. Emily, thank you, Erica.